The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. In 1977, a set of three children's books were published, which would go on to become a cult classic. Among the most borrowed, and probably the most stolen, from school libraries across the country, these three titles made up the Usborne Mysteries of the Unknown series. Individually, they were the worlds of the unknown that looked at ghosts, monsters and UFOs. Recently, an internet petition and campaign ran to bring back the most loved of these three titles, Ghosts. Started by Anna Howarth, a member of staff at Usborne Books, the campaign grew far faster and far wider than it was ever expected. The result, apart from taking over a large part of Anna's life, was that the decision was taken by Usborne to re-release the book, which will take place this October. The cover and the inside content and design remain largely unchanged, apart from the addition of a foreword by award-winning writer and comedian and lifelong fan of the book, Rhys Shearsmith, best known for being one quarter of the League of Gentlemen. Today on the Folklore Podcast, we discuss the importance of this book and the campaign to bring it back. Joining me to do this are Anna Howarth herself, and alongside her, film director and animator Ashley Thorpe, himself a big supporter of the campaign. Ashley's last film, Borley Rectory, also starred Rhys Shearsmith, and the new Blu-ray release of this title contains, among the many special features, more information on the Usborne Ghosts book, including a recent interview with the original author of the work. What follows is a long and fascinating look at a classic children's book, still loved by us grown-ups too. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Hi, Anna and Ashley, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Hello. Uh. Now, um, normally I would have by now introduced 
people to people so that everybody knew who everybody was on here. But uh, for a change, as there are two of you guesting rather than just one, I thought it might be quite nice if you um, did your own introductions. Um, and also maybe uh, spoke a little bit about your particular interests in folklore and where they, where they come from. So um, let's go, ladies, first. Um, Anna, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Anna Howarth. I'm the Director of Global Branding and UK Marketing at Usborne, which is the UK's biggest independent children's book publisher. And probably rather unusually for one of your guests, I don't really have a particular interest in folklore, or at least I didn't until recently. Excellent. And Ashley, who are you? Who am I indeed? Um, my name's Ashley Thorpe. I'm uh, a Devon-based animator who most recently um, wrote, uh, directed and animated the animated documentary Borley Rectory and um, I, I kind of have a lifelong interest in folklore and myths and legends kind of having grown up in Devon and always really kind of very much a kind of word of mouth telling of the stories really i wasn't really interested in an academic way until i became much older my my interest lay very much in just being surrounded by people that told all these stories and ghost stories when i was a kid and my excitement and enthusiasm for them never really went away in fact if anything it got more and more intense and then i, I started appreciating them as stories in themselves and um and and how they kind of relate to a, a kind of a british heritage in many ways so um if anything my interest in them's getting worse not better <laughs> it's not going away <laughs> uh, i i would argue that that's getting better and not getting worse the fact that just the fact right. that it's not going away is a good thing um yeah so we have we have one person here who until recently didn't have a particular interest in folklore we have one person here who has always had an interest in folklore and we have one thing that joins those two people together um, for one, causing the development of a love of folklore and, and for the other, perhaps introducing you to it. And that is the Usborne book from the World of the Unknown series, Ghosts. Um, yeah. Anna, tell us a little bit about the Usborne series of books that make up World of the Unknown. Well, this is, um, we're calling it a, a cult classic series. I think it's probably fair to say that. This was a series first published in the late 1970s. And the series is World of the Unknown. Uh, there were three books in the series, Monsters, UFOs and Ghosts. And then they were published together as a sort of bind-up compendium called Mysteries of the Unknown. Um, so very popular during that time. We don't know much about sales figures, but we know that they um, there were something like 30,000 copies of each of those books uh, printed for the UK per year. And we know that they were in print for about 20 years. And we also know that one of the places that they really lived were was in school libraries and where they were taken out by, you know, lots and lots and lots of kids. So they were very popular at the time. And they stayed in print for about 20 years and then they sort of faded away, um, but weren't forgotten by this generation. Um, 
so I, you know, I sort of glibly say that I'm not interested in folklore. I think everybody is interested in folklore. I suppose I didn't really know that this counted as folklore. These were some of my favourite books when I was a kid. Um, but I didn't really realise there was this huge uh, fan base for them out there. Um, and it seems from um, what I found out through talking about this book online, that it's really like a collective memory that people had of this book and social media has really brought those people together. Yes, absolutely. And and you know what? I think that this is one of those books that is, that is, I hesitate to say every school child's, but the vast majority of school children's um, first look at, at the paranormal and those sorts of subjects was through this set of books. Um, Ashley, what do you recall about um, this series first time around and why, in your opinion, is this such an important set of books? Um, yeah, I'd agree with what you said about um, they were they were a way in to um, an interest in folklore and legends uh, for a lot of children, I think. I mean, they certainly were for me. Again, I, I think I initially discovered them in the school library and then it was something you just went out into town and desperately tried to convince your mum and dad to buy you um and it they were such wonderfully designed wonderfully informative books that didn't patronize their audience they gave you these lovely little nuggets of information that you could then go off and subsequently do more reading about because the funny thing is is that i was i discovered that the osborne book of ghosts in the school library and it would literally be it would be like a game of British Bulldog with all the boys just desperately scrabbling to get these books out at lunchtime. And then once we'd once we'd read these different stories, I specifically remember things like um, things like the Screaming Skull, and then reading about that, and then realising that that my mum had also been collecting this um, supernatural series, which was just called like Mysteries of Mysterious Monsters. Mysteries of the Afterlife, Mysterious Happenings. She had this huge, great library, which I think came from a book club. And one of them I remembered had a photograph of a skull on the front. And I just suddenly clicked. And that the ghost book directly made me start looking at these slightly older books about the unknown, which were very, very much kind of 40 and times type level reading. So they were, I don't know, they're just this sort of magical kind of key to opening this other world of reading for me. And I, um, I've i got a huge affection for them because they, they I still remember them so clearly about how excited I was every time that one that just diving back into them again, but also the excitement of then finding out that a new one had come out. Like, you know, they've got monsters in the library now and you just rush down to read it. And I think the what's... Uh, it sticks in a lot of people's minds, perhaps, about the ghosts one more than the monsters, maybe, um, is the fact that it has some really iconic uh, alleged photographs of ghosts, which, which um, you know, people still talk about to this day, as, as, as well as some of the other stories in there. Yeah, I think it was the material, actually, when you when you look back on it, now because obviously i was looking at it in completely virgin eyes then i mean everything was exciting in there but when you look back at it again now you realize actually how canny and clever the the choices of material actually were because they're very varied 
you get a real sense of ghosts all across the globe. But when it comes to actually saying, well, here are some photographs of ghosts, and these are the ones that we're not sure if they are faked or not, they made some very good choices because, because those particular ghosts are absolutely terrifying. And it's that stuff I remember really staying with me. And those were the things which I was quite frightened of because it was it was one thing being excited in um, ghosts being presented to you as fables almost, and you could understand them in that way. But then when you had this this glimpse at the end of you know the uh, the, the 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 ghost at the altar, and uh, you know the one of the um, the old lady sat in the the back of the taxi cab and things, you look at those and think. Oh my God! What if the rest of this stuff's true as well? <laughs> yeah, and they really are iconic images, aren't they? And there are other stories in there as well that I think stick with you. I mean, for me, certainly, I think my my favourite story out of all of them um, is the story of Jeff, the talking mongoose, which is um, <laughs> it's a subject that we've covered on the podcast. Um, Previously, uh, Chris Joseph, who who has written the definitive book recently on Jeff, um, was a guest and spoke at some length about it. And that was always my favourite and still remains so. And I can still picture those pages in that book many, many years later. Yeah, do you know, the weird thing is, is that I barely remembered Jeff the Talking Mongoose. And it was only when other people, especially um, Reese, who is, dare I say it, mildly obsessed with Jeff the Mongo Talking Mongoose, or Geff as he calls him, um, it was only that that really reminded me. It was like, oh, yeah, there was that weird Talking Mongoose in it. I'd forgotten about that. Um, it, that didn't strike a chord with me at all. It was really weird. The things which really got me were the very gothic things, like glams, like the Screaming Skull, um, the ghost of Captain Kidd. It was all the kind of the gothic stuff. I mean, you can see all that stuff in my work. I and mean, that's obviously the, the stuff that fires my imagination. But yeah, I was always, um, I always find it slightly humorous that people were so in wonder of the talking mongoose. Yeah, you should, you should, um, totally direct Reese. Um, this is Reese Shearsmith, um, who we'll mm. come back to in a moment. Um, totally direct him to, to the episode of the podcast about, Jeff, because um, A, it's a really in-depth examination, and B, I also do admit in that podcast that I always referred to him as Geff as well for many, many years. Ah, <laughs> yes, so Therese isn't the only one. No, 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 he's not alone, not by any stretch. Um, the reason that we're talking about this book at all today um, is because of you, Anna, and that's because you set up an online petition to campaign for Usborne, who are your employer, <laughs> to re-release this book. Why did you set up that campaign for the re-release? Well, you say it's because of me. It's actually because of Ashley. Because um, in a quite a roundabout way, I well, I have these, you know, like many people, I'm sure many of your listeners, and many of the people that I've um, been very lucky to connect with uh, online recently, you know, I had these books as, as a child. They stayed with me. I also was a huge fan of Jeff. I did actually, I did actually listen to that amazing podcast quite recently, and I did send it to Reese because we'd had a conversation about the motivation of of Jeff or Geff, and you know what was the sort of backstory of that. And obviously, I found that out through through the episode that you did with Christopher Joseph, which was amazing. Um, but so, 
I got a call from someone at Nucleus that Ashley was working with saying, um, you know, we're working on this film with Rhys Shearsmith and he's a massive fan of this book and he'd like to interview the author, Christopher Maynard. Can you put us in touch with him? And I said, well, really sorry, I I can't. No, we're not in touch with him anymore. He wasn't a a member of the staff. You know, this is a really long time ago. I sort of, you know, gave a few pointers. This is maybe how you could get in touch with him. And didn't think that much more about it. But I did just send a tweet saying, I've just heard that Rhys Shearsmith loves this book. And I love this book. And that's cool because I, you know, love his work. And, you know, this is an exciting thing. And so I didn't really think that much of it. But I tagged Reese into the tweet and he just replied straight away saying, if you reissue it, I'll write a foreword. And I thought, well, I've been going on about this book for ages. I mean, I've been at Osborne almost 15 years. I've been going on about this book the whole time I've been there saying, you know, it's time. We need to bring this back. And everybody was sort of saying, no, it's just niche. It's nostalgia. It's retro. There's, you know, not big enough market for these vintage books. Um but then when we said that, I thought, you know, if he's for real, I'm going to have to try and do something about it. So I, um, you know, did the due diligence and checked with his agent that he wasn't just, you know, saying something on Twitter for fun. And um, she said, no, you know, he's definitely, he definitely loved to do it. He really loves this book. Um, so, yeah, that's when I set up the online petition to basically prove to my employers, as you say, my employers, um, to prove that it wasn't just me in this sort of weird niche bunch of ghosts fans on the internet which I think is perhaps how some people viewed it um and yeah we got uh, I sort of thought if I can get a thousand signatures a thousand people to say yeah I loved it I would buy a new copy obviously that's quite an important thing from a commercial point of view um you know if I can really get these people to say you know yeah I'd, I'd buy one uh maybe that'll you know, prove it but it really went crazy I mean we got well over the thousand signatures that we were hoping for got some really high profile um uh sort of um signatories uh Nick Frost being one um we've got a great quote from David Nichols um so that was great and just the sheer volume of reader reviews talking about how much they loved this book and their childhood experience of it and being terrified and being so scared that they couldn't look at it or they couldn't be in the same room as it or um one reader which um who said that they were so scared of one particular page that they would go to the toilet and their brother would slide it under the door the book under the door of the bathroom at that open at that page just to terrify them it was just you know it was just gold dust this this stuff that was coming out about this book. And because I set up the petition, I was actually able to see where people had signed. And it was not only all over the UK, but it was all over the world. There's almost no country worldwide where somebody hadn't said that they'd had this experience. And and what happened when you then took this to uh, your employers at Usborne? What was their reaction to how this had panned out? Uh, it's still a bit mixed, I think. So um, my my boss, Peter Osborne, is the founder of Osborne Publishing, set up Osborne in 1973. Um, and at that point, Osborne was, you know, a really different thing. There was not really any nonfiction for the trade in, in children's books. So there was non there were nonfiction books for the educational market, you know, very school-based. 
And then there were sort of classics and readers, but there wasn't anything like this. And he came from a magazine background. He set up Private Eye and then he worked in uh, various publishing roles before setting up his own company. And he had this um, idea that he wanted children's books to be absolutely enthralling you know so it was a really a new era of this illustrated non-fiction um and you know those early books do have a very distinctive look as you know it's and actually a lot of that comes from magazines and from comics and from tv you know the sort of picture strip with the rounded corners and this very sort of bright vivid artwork style so peter you know peter's still my boss and he's now in his 80s and I think he thought, you know, that's that's just that's what we used to do. That's not what people would want now. You know, it's so different. The aesthetic is so different. Um, but so I think he again, yeah, I think he just thought, is this bit of a niche thing? Is it going to sell? Okay, people have got these fond memories. That's really nice. But you know, I don't. I just don't think he realised the scale of it. And then other colleagues, some were really for it. Thought, yeah, this is a you know, this is a great idea. And some, I think, just thought, yeah, I think just a lot of people thought it was quite niche. And perhaps it is niche, but my, my sense is that it's a very big niche. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> I mean, to to prove that point, the, the book is now available for pre-order on Amazon. What happened when it went up there? Well, it went straight to number one in its category, um, which is children's horror, um, <laughs> which is a strange category in itself. But, um, yeah, I mean, people just went, crazy for it and it was such a, a sort of nice reaction sort of I, I you know I did feel sort of validated that people you know were tweeting and saying you know I've not only bought a copy I've not only pre-ordered a copy but I've bought six because I bought them for um all the children in my family and you know all my childhood friends who I you know read the book with in the school library yes I think you're absolutely vindicated and even the fact that I announced on Twitter um, that we were going to record this interview was enough that plenty of people interacted with the fact that you were coming on to talk about it. So I think that in itself shows the popularity of it. Um, Ashley, you you have worked very closely with Reese Shearsmith because uh, of the fact that he plays quite a large part in your last film, Borley Rectory. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, why he feels that this book is important from the discussions that you've had and why he was so keen to to contribute to it um the funny thing is is that the the osborne books actually were one of the first things that reese and i ever discussed back in about 2013 it would have been now um when we first got in contact we started chatting about Bawley Rectory and it, one of the first things that we um, <clears throat> we realised is that we both had this common thread, that we both were mad about the Osborne Supernatural books, uh, specifically ghosts, and then that the first time that either of us had ever encountered Bawley Rectory as a subject, certainly as children, was in their um, their later Haunted Houses book with the, um, the lovely double spread in there and the, the cross section of the of the rectory and um and again you know for reese like it was for me it was just a genuine childhood fascination and you know reese went so far as to make a cardboard replica of the rectory based on that illustration in in the uh, the osborne book you know he was absolutely crazy about it and we recently 
made um, a featurette for the, the Bawley Blu-ray, actually, celebrating the legacy of the, the Osborne books and the way that it was this wonderful way for children to get interested in the subject in, in quite a well-observed educational kind of way. And um, there's some lovely little anecdotes and memories of um, from Reese actually when he's in there just sat there next to Anna just leafing through this book and you can see Reese keeps coming up with this phrase you know this is the closest thing to time travel that you're going to ever find because he's just you can see him you can just see the inner child in him it's just blossoming as he's just reading through this book again and just the light in his face as he's discovering this stuff again it was amazing you know and I think the fact that uh, when when you look at um, the body of work that Reese and his colleagues have have produced over the last few years, um, you can see that books such as this really were that first kind of influence that that drove the way forward for the, for the style of writing um, and the kind of uh, drama and 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 comedy that 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 they produce. Definitely, and I think it's really interesting that that Reese specifically um, the two stories that he talked about a lot in there was he talked about glams because it's so grotesque, um, but also this thing about Jeff or or Geff as he calls him, the fact that it is this wonderful mixture of the uncanny and and the absurd in some ways, and and I think that yeah you can look at all their work and you think well that's that's from down to a T. And, and also the fact that it, it then came out that his two favourite Osborne books, one of them was about, um, was the ghost book, and the other one was about uh, magic. And Reese, those two books, you know, if you want to understand Reese Shearsmith, it's those two books <laughs> side by side. And there, there's a character portrait of, um, of Reese. And I don't think he'd mind saying that either. <laughs> I don't think it's any bad thing at all, is it? No. Um, now we've we've spoken very very briefly about um, the author of of the ghosts book, Christopher Maynard. Um, uh, Anna, what do we know about Chris and his body of work, and how he came to research and write this book? Mm. Well, one of the best things about this campaign is that we didn't know anything about Chris Maynard before. Um, but thanks to Ashley and the reissue, we actually got to meet him a week or so ago, and it was brilliant. Um, it was such uh, an interesting day we had filming with him, and he was just fantastic. Uh, we didn't really know what to expect. I mean, Chris was, to put this into context, most Osborne books are written by in-house staff writers. And these are people that are experts in communicating with kids, but they're not necessarily experts in their subject. The idea is that they um, think like a child, they do the research, they you know decide what, what is going to interest their reader, and then they um, consult experts to make sure all the facts are right. So in this case, it was... Um, famous folklorist Eric Maple um so my assumption was that you know Chris was a staff writer writing all sorts of different things for us born and you know that's about as far as far as my sort of knowledge of him went so we were really lucky to get in touch with him and I think at first he did also think this is a bunch of slightly strange people that are obsessed <laughs> with this book that I did you know 40 years ago or whatever and what's all this about so we we sort of had to do a little bit of persuading him 
just I think to convince him that we were for real yeah. Um, but when we met him, it was just fantastic. So he was, yes, he was. Um, he wasn't a staff writer, but he was a freelancer for us born at that time, and he was also working for other, you know, publishers. But what we really got the sense of was that he was really at the sort of cutting edge of this new wave of children's nonfiction. I mean, he sort of said, you know, oh, ghosts. Yeah, it was one of loads of books we did. We were heroes in those days. And I love that sort of attitude that they were doing something so different and so exciting. And he sort of talked about actually in very much the way Osborne books are written now, um, writers and designers working really closely together to come up with this very visual look where the text and the pictures are really closely integrated. And he said something which is, you know, slightly sort of flippant. He said, you know, we could have written about anything. I think he said something like, we could have written about, about coal mining. You yeah. know, if somebody came and said to us, write about, you know, whatever subject, we could have done it. And we could have made it interesting. And we could have made kids love it because that's what we did. Yeah, um, and he really did, didn't he? Because I, I, if you click on his name on Amazon, which is one of the nice things about uh, being able to look at authors' bodies of work on, on online retailers. It'll come up with all the other things that he's written. And I'm not mm. sure that he has written about coal coal mining, but he has certainly <laughs> written about transport and, and various other things, the kind of things you expect to see in schools' libraries, yes. Ashley, um, you had a chance to talk to Chris as well. Um, what what did you get out of that conversation? Um, yeah, it was it was fascinating to talk to him at length really and obviously to, to make him realize that we were taken all very seriously we met him in a crypt um you know like you do yeah, um, of course <laughs> but it, it was it was it was amazing because it's um it was it was funny getting stories out of him about um what kind of material that they did use stuff that they didn't use um, it was funny finding out that originally Borley Rectory was going to be in Ghosts and then because of they were worried about existing family um, and getting into sort of legal trouble that they bumped it for a few years until a, a future edition and a subsequent book. But uh, it was the thing that I was most fascinated by was that with the kind of the working methods that they they got together, that they had this consultant, Eric Maple, who they literally said that whenever they he would pass by the office, they would... In Christopher's words, they would grab him and drag him round the corner to a pub, and then they would sit and get as much information out of him as possible, and that some of the illustrators would be there, and that they'd start scribbling out ideas of what the creatures were going to look like, and you can just imagine this kind of um, this kind of flourishing of material and excitement, and all the ideas for the stories are going down. You've got this kind of wise folklorist giving all this information. You've got the illustrators scribbling out the black shuck. So should we give him just one red eye? Oh, that'd be brilliant. Nastier, <laughs> scarier. And it was just those images. You just think, oh, if only I could have been sat in that pub on those days. You know, that would have been amazing. But to, to hear Christopher sit there, you know, and just laughing, just remembering all these things and telling these stories was um, absolutely priceless. Absolutely priceless. I couldn't quite believe it when I was sat there talking to him. But yeah, it does. It does sound like a really fun era, doesn't it? And I'll also, yeah. I should just say I, I also got in touch with um, John Francis, is one of the illustrators. We haven't had much luck in tracking down any of the other um, artists that worked on the book. You know, quite numerous artists that worked on it. But I got in touch with this guy, John Francis, and again, he like like Chris, he was sort of, oh yeah, I did loads of stuff for us. But which one was that again? And <laughs> um, and when I sent him scans of it, he said, oh yeah, yeah. 
some of that's works mine. And he'd illustrated the um the spread with Black Shark, um, and Jeff the Mongoose, and uh, various other, you know, iconic sort of illustrations from it. And he was saying, Yeah, you know, we used to do the uh, I used to do the artwork and then I would deliver it freshly painted to the Osborne offices and then I'd go to the pub with the editor. <laughs> <laughs> it was the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Isn't it nice though that um, in order to research this book, they drew on the knowledge of a folklorist um, in order to get what they needed. And so we've got a nice, a nice interjection of folklore here into the whole process of creating this book. Um, these days, it would be very easy to separate out folklore and the paranormal, I guess. But but. Uh, that back then that was a good way of doing it. What do we know about Eric Maple? I know Ashley, you've been trying to look into um, a bit about Eric Maple's background recently. Yeah, I mean, I've only I've only just been sort of digging mainly just to try and find um, some images of him really for the for the Osborne featurette because Christopher mentions him on numerous occasions. So I've just been just sort of tracking down images of him for the the little documentary and I've, I've had to I found a few bits and pieces via the um, witchcraft museum at Boss Castle and then I've just looks like it, the emails popped up I've just got one from Peter Underwood's son by the looks of it so um yeah I'd like to do some more reading about Eric Maple especially now Yes, I do know that a lot. He passed away in the 1990s, if I remember rightly. And I know the Folklore Society um, took in certainly um, parts of Eric Maple's library, which are now integrated into the, the holdings of the Folklore Society in London. Um, so there'll certainly be some information there, if nowhere else, about him. Mm. Yeah, well, he seems like an interesting character. And it is fascinating that, that Usborne... Like I say, they actually sort of relied on him and used him as like a fountain of knowledge for um, for a children's series. The fact that it was taken seriously and that it wasn't just, oh, we'll just do it as conjecture and hearsay. We'll, we'll talk to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about and use that as a basis for, as they presented it, as an educational book, as opposed to a here's some tales to give you the willies type thing, which I think have probably been done previously. This was an educational book with a kind of a, an educational source it's like some of these stories can be rooted to real places to real stories that are told in that region and to get a folklorist to give the all of the tales and that presentation that grounding i think it's extraordinary and you can see why these books were were groundbreaking in their time for that reason yes absolutely so so why do you think then these books become of interest from a folklore perspective is it the case that they are informed by somebody who looked into the folklore, um, or is it the way in which the stories are presented? Do you think? I think it's, I think it's a bit of both. I think it's one the fact that it has this um, basis in, uh, you know, an educational system. It's, it comes from an educational publishing house. They're consulting a folklorist, um, and obviously there wasn't internet back then. As you know. It's not like a creepypasta or anything like that. They use a folklorist to give it some kind of credibility and so that it's knowledgeable in its presentation. But I think also that the thing which always fascinated me was the fact that it was um, the stories are so varied. Um, and having those stories all collected together, and especially the ghosts, like you say, there's a little bit of it with monsters and UFOs, but it is mainly the ghosts one. And you get it again in the Haunted Houses one. 
is that it does feel like um it feels a little bit like a, a, a law of the land almost you do get this sense of um this of kind of britain being this wonderful tapestry of tales um that's been going on for eons there's prehistoric kind of ghosts in there there's ghosts from every age but they're presented so straight it's like the you know this is this story and this is it's linked to this manor house and it's been told for hundreds and perhaps even thousands of years and i think that's i mean that's what always um, resonated with me is the fact that you've got this wonderful variation of tales and they're told in this very unpatronizing kind of straight-faced manner i mean one thing interesting thing that christopher did say is that he, they they tried to approach presenting the materials as if they were anthropologists from another planet <laughs> you know that they just were beamed down and they looked at all this stuff and they were just reporting it back to the mothership and i think that's what's really interesting because they're not coming down they're not passing judgment they're not going look at this tall tale what nonsense a talking mongoose you know it, it's they're, they're, they're listening well this is the story this is what um, they said happened. There is some evidence for this. There's some, you know, some letters relating to that and whatever. And go make your own mind up. And I think that I mean, a clear proof of uh, how that resonated with me is that that's pretty much exactly what I then go off and do with, with <laughs> my film, with Bawley Rectory. I go, right, okay, here's the evidence. This is how it affected me. Now go off and make your own mind up. I don't say it's true. I don't say it's not true. But, it, you know, it was that that Usborne ghost's way of doing it. It's like, here's everything you need to know. Now go off and have a little think about it. Or, you know, maybe go off and read some more about it. Mm. Yeah. We've had a lot of comments about people saying, you know, it's presented as if it is non-fiction. It's yeah. presented as if it's, you know, it's completely, you know, like Ashley says, it's not patronising. It's this very sort of authoritative tone. But, you know, I, I've, I've been saying to people, it, it is nonfiction. It, and this is what brings it, I suppose, for me, it brings it back to the folklore thing. You know, it's folklore is 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 real. It's a real thing. You know, people have these beliefs and customs and and that is real, whether the things that they believe in are real or not. And when we asked Chris whether he believed in ghosts, he said, I believe that people believe in ghosts. Yeah. Well, they, and that, to me, sort of is the link between this, you know, folklore and non-fiction. It's real. It's people's belief systems. Yeah, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there, haven't you? Because um, the I've made this point many times before. The, the, the difference between folklore and something like, if we're talking about ghosts, paranormal investigation, is that for us as folklorists, whether or not something actually physically exists is pretty much irrelevant we're not looking for evidence in the same way as um you know self-styled paranormal investigators are looking for evidence to prove or disprove a ghost what we're looking at is the story behind it and how that story evolves and is transmitted and what it means to the people who tell that story that's the difference isn't it yeah yeah, and this is this is sort of it been interesting to me as this sort of campaign has built online because this book seems to be the sort of centre of some sort of complicated Venn diagram that you've got folklorists on one side, you've got paranormal sort of people, you know, in another area, you've got the nostalgia people that just love anything about the seventies. You've got this hauntology movement, you know, about this sort of very specific sort of aesthetic and you know, lots of things related, UFOs and monsters and sort of nuclear threat and all those things. 
there's lots of people that are in lots of groups that are interested in this and they're sort of separate but i suppose it's like you're saying that you know ghost is what brought ashley and i together what's brought all of these people together Yes, it has. And it's going to be interesting to see how that develops, isn't it? Because I know you've been doing some work with um, with Haunted and, and other places like that recently. And I wonder how mm. how it will be seen from the from the paranormal side as well. And just to prove a point, as an ex-school librarian, it absolutely was catalogued as non-fiction because it was shelved in the <laughs> 001s, which is where paranormal books sit within the the Dewey system for for non-fiction titles. So yeah, it was it was catalogued as non-fiction. And yeah. so it should be. Absolutely. <laughs> so so what are both of you your overriding memories of this book? You you both first came across it as I did um in the school library. Um for me the the one overriding memory that I took away, like Reese, was was Jeff the Mongoose. Um, although I have, and Anna, you know this because you've seen the tweet. Um, I have used the illustration of the black shuck um, for a talk I I gave to the London Fortean Society about black dog folklore last year because it's such a great a great illustration to represent that. Um, but what did you two take away from it that you now bring back to it and think, oh, yeah, that was what put me on this path. Do you want to go first, Anna, or shall I leap in? Well, I, I'm another Jeff fan. I have to admit, yeah. I'm another Jeff fan. So, um, yeah, I think there's quite quite a lot of us out there. And, um, yeah, it was interesting talking to Reese about it because, you know, I mentioned to him, oh, you know, somebody, you know, several people have said to me, oh, surely Reese Shearsmith's going to do a, a Jeff the Mongoose TV special or something, <laughs> which is why I was um, saying that I was very interested in your podcast with Christopher Joseph because... Yeah, Reese was talking about, yeah, what's the motivation? What's the backstory? Was it was it the mum making it up? Was it the was it the daughter? And I, I sort of approached it from much more of a surreal League of Gentlemen sort of direction and I just assumed that Reese would dress up as a mongoose man. <laughs> a sort of man weasel. Um obviously, you know, not a no not a folklore angle there, just a just a sort of dark comedy angle. Yes, absolutely. Um, but Reece, We're obviously Reece, very hopeful that that Jeff series is going to be made. Yes, absolutely. And Reese, if he hasn't read Chris's book, Chris Joseph's book, really, um, that will tell him everything that he needs to know. For yeah, certain. when I listened to that, I realised that this is, yeah, this is the entire sort of backstory and the the motivation behind the family and everything, which is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it really, it really is an excellent book. Um, Ashley, what about you? Yeah, I, I think for, for me, it was the, it was it was the slightly more lurid ghost stories it was the the classical ghost stories for some reason maybe it's because it's the whole kind of growing up in devon um all the kind of the highwaymen the, the piratey stuff and the, the screaming and bleeding skulls um but i i think that the spread i particularly loved in there was the um the haunted house which has it's this lovely two-page illustration and it um and it was obviously the the forerunner to the later rectory cross-section and, and, and it had all these all the different hauntings and the different things that could be happening throughout this this um, haunted house, you know, the, the the piano playing itself and the figures walking through walls and the, the skull up in the attic. It's all that kind of stuff. So um, I think I think that was the one. I think that was the one that really captured my imagination. It's that, that lovely great big double spread of um, the haunted house. Yeah, that's the one for me. I think. Excellent. Um, 
Now, there's been so much excitement about this book um, that one of the first questions I got asked when I said on Twitter, does anyone else want to know anything when I'm going to talk to you two about this book or about what's happening? Um, the first question that I got back um, was, are they going to do the UFO book? And I, I guess yeah. also subsequently, are they going to do the monster book? Are they going to release all three? <laughs> what do you what do you think the feeling is about about putting the other books in the series out off the back of this one? I think it's very experimental. I mean, there was, um, you know, I don't think it's giving away any trade secrets to say there was no publishing strategy behind this reissue. Um, it was just an opportunity that I felt that we shouldn't um, overlook. So, um, yeah, we don't have a sort of policy on reissuing vintage Osborne books, although I would very much like to do it. Uh, I think we'll probably have to wait and see how um, Ghosts does. But, you know, obviously it'd be brilliant to bring back monsters and UFOs, which were, you know, equally amazing. And I think what is really sort of interesting and exciting for me is that, I mean, Ashley's featurette, this Usborne legacy, the the haunted generation, that there is something there and that it's in, it's just incredible to see the success that readers of these books have gone on to achieve and, and often in, in somehow related areas. I mean, Ashley's an obvious example, you know, making a film about Borley Retry, but so many people of this generation sort of feel so fondly about these books and they still do I think stand up as really amazing books the artwork style isn't what we would do now but it's still incredible artwork um the text is you know as you've said so thoroughly researched you know you can really see that um sort of consultancy from Eric Maple coming through um and you know they all they all all of the books in that series sort of come um with that sort of um same sort of tone of voice and style um but then there's another series afterwards which actually sort of referred to haunted um haunted houses and there was sort of vampires and werewolves and what's the other one mysterious, mysterious forces. powers mysterious yeah. powers yeah. yeah the small black um jacket hardbacks which were then um also bundled together into the supernatural world which are huge favorites with people um, and actually, weirdly, the um, it was last year, actually, um, Supernatural World was, it, it was a similar campaign in Finland to reissue that book. Um, there was a Facebook campaign, you know, 3,000 people, I think, joined this Facebook group and petitioned the Finnish, Finnish publisher who had bought the rights from Osborne in the 70s and, and the publishing Finnish. They petitioned them to bring that book back. That was reissued in the same way, actually. Um, this you know, huge fan base and um, just went straight into the children's charts. You know, they had loads of amazing events. Um, and it seems like every every person in Finland basically owns a copy of this book now. So, um, so let's hope that it goes the same way for you then in the UK with this one. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Could we do this now? Do you think uh, if if we were uh, publishing a similar book now in the start of the 21st century, in 30 or 40 years' time, 
do you think that we would be looking back in the same way at a title that came out now and going, do you know what, that really ought to be re-released? Or do we not do that sort of thing anymore? I don't know. Ashley, Ashley and the, the Borley Rectory team asked me the same question for the featurette. And I, I, I don't know. We wouldn't do it the same now. I don't think we would honestly have the the sort of daring to do it because it's, I mean, some of it is quite scary. Um, having said that, is the book scary or is it, is that a product of the, the brilliantly vivid imaginations of children? Um, I don't know, but somebody recently said um, there was a, a great um, review of these books in um, SFX magazine, and the journalist Nick Setchfield said that it was something to do with being caught between a laser bolt future and the echoes of folk horror, <laughs> which I love that mm. idea. Right? The, the, you know, this was a point in time, the 70s, when there were these brilliant new technologies and, you know, the Osborne book of the future, if you're familiar with that, is is an incredible book, which basically predicts everything from the Apple Watch to the Lunar Olympics in 2020. You know, we've still got a little bit of time to see if we're um, doing the sort of high jump on the moon. But um, that sort of idea of this amazing sort of rush of modernity, but then this, yeah, looking back at folk stories, I don't know, maybe it was just a time, maybe it was just a point in time and we couldn't really replicate that. I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe in 40 years' time we'll be reissuing books from today, but I, do, I don't know. I just, I don't think it, there's that thing of it being new and different and, you know, before the internet, you know, there weren't that many TV channels and everybody went to the school library and families all watched the same thing on telly. It was you know, it's different now, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's a key point, isn't it? Is the relationship with books has changed now, um, not only the fact that people consume books differently, so a print book is only part of the process of reading now, and that was different in the 70s, but since the advent of the internet and the way that information is moved around and taken on board generally, I guess we don't come up with that kind of book that every child wants to take out of the school library and sit underneath the duvet with a torch and read instead of going to sleep anymore do we yeah definitely media and culture in general I think you know when you talk to people about this era you know everybody remembers the same tv shows everybody remembers the same adverts everybody remembers the same books and it is that thing of the you know there wasn't that much to do and everybody did it so this collective memory from that era is very strong. And I don't know if people would have that type of collective memory mm. from now. This, yeah. this, this whole aspect of, of the digital world is, is a very, very tricky one for, for folklore as well. Um, I mean, part of that is the way that stories travel and the way that stories are changed and consumed and adapted now in the digital realm. But also moving on from that, it's the way that information is stored and retrieved now. Um, when you think about the archives of, of people like Eric Maple, for example, you've got massive paper-based archives of stories that have been collected, recorded, compared to other things, filed away. Um, you can archive those, you can access them many years down the line, um, you're still capable of picking up a piece of paper and reading it, um, 
but people who collect information now and store it electronically how we archive that for the future is a very very different thing <laughs> isn't it I yeah, guess there's, there's a lot to find yeah and it, and it causes it causes a lot of trouble trouble for um uh anthropologists folklorists people like that um you know how how you retrieve an archive um when when a folklorist uh passes away for example you know an old paper archive would be bequeathed to a library or bequeathed to a society what happens if all of the collecting has been stored digitally and is on the cloud for example is it even mm. retrievable or is it lost it's it's a very very difficult issue isn't it to to overcome now uh before we move into the the final part of this are there any other points that either of you would like to make about this book and and where it's going I think one thing I'd like to um, <clears throat> to say about is that when Anna was talking about the book being republished in Finland, is that I remember, uh, it, and it was last year actually. Mm. Um, I this is before this whole. I, I didn't know that these books had been republished at all. I had no idea they'd been republished in Finland. So I kind of I was invited to go out to the Night Visions Festival in Helsinki. And they paid for me to go out there for five days and put up in a hotel with a, an assistant and a driver. And they were going to show Borley Rectory in three different venues over that week. And I remember at the time receiving the invitation and kind of pinching myself and thinking, they've got the wrong guy, haven't they? <laughs> why, why, do they why do they want to show it three times? In, like, in Helsinki as well. It's not like Essex where you kind of think, yeah, okay, I get it. But in Helsinki... And it wasn't until I got over there, and then the uh, Miko Aromas was say, the organizer of the festival was saying, um, "There's been a lot of press over here recently about the fact that these these books have been collected and republished again." And uh, and I realised that that was absolutely true when I went up on on stage on the first screening, and people were asking me questions, and they said, "So, what was the inspiration for making?" Retri, and I said, "Well, it was the it was the Osborne Supernatural series, and this uh, you know this kind of hardcore horror, kind of punk rock audience were just there going, yeah." And I just thought, "Wow, wow!" I I honestly thought I was going to come over here like this kind of Englishman abroad, and that they were going to have no idea what on earth I was talking about when I started talking about these forty-year-old books, and yet they knew exactly what I was talking about because I suspect that the majority of the people that were in that audience were probably members of that Facebook group <laughs> who'd been fighting to make sure that those books were published again. And it was an extraordinary thing to go from, you know, halfway across the earth and to be stood there screening a film that had been inspired by these books when I was a little boy, read them in a library, to then standing in Helsinki, be faced with some of which were quite a young crowd, quite a, quite a young kind of punk rock kind of crowd. And, they were all just going, yeah, we love those books. And they can, wow, that's incredible. What, you know, what a legacy. I never really thought that these things would follow me. But that's the extraordinary thing about it. It's like Anna was saying, it's extraordinary the impact that those books had upon an entire generation. And it will be really interesting to see if um, 
whether reissuing the book, whether it is, you know, it doesn't just go out to, you know, <laughs> people who are racing towards 50 and desperately trying to relive their childhoods, you know, um, or whether it will, it will then get, I mean, I'm certainly going to let my little girl read it. Absolutely. She's already reading like little haunted house pop-up books. I mean, that's the, kind of the next stage, I think, you know, so it'd be lovely to see whether that has that kind of resonance and whether it births again, you know, this, um, these supernatural epiphanies. Yeah, we we have to make sure that we the, the goal has got to be to get a copy in every school library again, surely, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a shame that there aren't more school libraries. I think that's one thing that's sort of been flagged as part of this campaign is just how important those school libraries were in terms of these, you know, librarians really introducing a, a, this generation to these, you know, fascinating subjects and, you know, lots of stories about school librarians either giving a copy to a child that had taken it out so many times or you know people stealing it from school libraries and I, I was saying to Ashley when we talked about this you know I don't know any school librarian that wouldn't be sort of secretly glad to you know have a child that was so into reading and so into a particular book that they wanted to nick that book and take it home oh god absolutely. because that's what school librarians are all about yeah yes. it's like the never-ending story isn't it it's the little it's the little wry smile as um, Bastian runs off with the book under his arm from the shop, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and you know this whole point. Uh, you say, Ashley, that you'd be happy for your daughter to read it. The, the, the whole point is that whether something is scary or not is a very, very subjective thing, isn't it? I mean, for example, we have. I, I work um, part time for the public library service now. Um, and in our beginners reads in the children's section, we have a whole collection of the Usborne first reading books. And you'll know these mm -hmm. very well, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we had a complaint, not in the library that I work in, but within Devon libraries that filtered through to the rest of us from somebody who complained that the Usborne first reading Dracula had illustrations that were too scary for early reading children. But everybody else loves it, you know. So it's a very subjective thing, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's bound to be. It's always been that way, isn't it? I mean, I think I know that. Um, but my uh, my little girl's five, and her favourite TV show is Scooby Doo. And that was that hasn't been forced on her. I know a lot of people think that I must be sat there going, "Watch it." Um, <laughs> but it's just something that she just loves it. She loves the fact that they're all friends and they have these adventures and. And weirdly, her favourite, we watch all the seasons, but her favourite ones are the original ones from uh, 1969 through to like the early 70s. Yeah. And weird, weirdly, because she says the stories are better and the ghosts are cooler. Yeah, now, I can understand that. They're the scariest ghosts, I think. But I think that what what they do to, for Lily is that I think they help her contextualise things that she that she is afraid of. She is afraid of some spooky stuff. She doesn't like witches. There are some things where you can just tell, it's like, oh, I don't like this very much. But for her, Scooby-Doo is quite empowering because they always bust the ghost at the end. They always prove that it's probably not real, um, with very rare exceptions. Um, they always make the ghost look slightly ridiculous. And so for her, she loves this stuff. So I, you know, I just think good, absolutely good, and I hope that, you know, when she uh, probably uh, when she's a little bit older, I let her read the Osborne Ghost Book because mm. you know, it, it's not presented like Scooby Doo. Let's face it. No, no. But but I hope that she will read it and kind of love it and kind of understand that ultimately, 
you know, that these are stories that people have been telling for a very long time and that they're exciting. It's, it's evidence of magic around us at a time when um, the world seemingly seems to be trying to crush that kind of magic and sense of enchantment, especially in young children, I think, by, you know, just banning everything from shape or form. It must be a bad thing. And you think, well, you're going to have some wonderful um, strange conversations about death when they're older then. Yeah, I mean, we all grew up with these books, didn't we? And and we're all still here and relatively sane, at least I hope so. so yeah, that's what we're all saying. We were, but we we've, yeah. we've turned out fine. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the only thing to be the only thing to be scared about in Scooby Doo, let's be honest, is Scrappy. And if you're going to watch the early ones, you don't have that problem. Exactly. I don't consider uh, Scrappy canon. No, <laughs> I think that's very wise. I'm a Scooby snob now. <laughs> we've we've been talking a lot about this this idea. You know, we're a children's publisher. We you know try not to terrify children, obviously. But you know, we've been talking a lot about you know, is this book too scary? Is it on brand? But you know, this is this is like part of the Osborne origin story to me. We're still creating books that are like this in some way or another. You know, it's different topics, but it's the same approach, and. Children, I think children do want to be a bit scared. You know, that sort of, it's, are you skilled, are you scared or are you thrilled? Are you exhilarated? You know, there's that, there's a very fine line you're saying between sort of horror and comedy and then between being scared and being excited. And, and all of the people that have talked about being scared of these books when they were kids all say, but I kept reading it, I kept reading it, I kept going yeah. back to it. Yeah. And the idea that you're in this safe environment where you can look at something and be a bit scared and shut the book and put it under the bed and lock it in a box and leave the room. Um, but then you can go back to it and you can have another little look and you can sort of, you know, build up that resilience. But you know, it's just sort of, it's, yeah, it's very exciting, that, that sense when you're a kid of the sort of slightly forbidden, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was a big part of the um, the series power. And there was so much material of that nature around in the 70s as well. And even we mentioned it a bit um, last week, all the uh, all the children's television, like Children of the Stones, it was kind of dark, it's a bit twisted. The, the Doctor Who's of the time were not these kind of colourful, flowery kind of stories they were the tom baker tellings of wen chang and horror at fang rock they're always kind of dark gothic stories and it and it was it was about that you know the daleks everything it was about that slight frisson of oh i don't like it but i've got to carry on watching it yeah you know yeah. i can't i can't get enough of it it's exciting and and i think that's um you know I, it, it seems really sad that children aren't allowed to be exposed to that kind of thing it's it's the freedom the freedom of growing up and it's when you know there's a big difference between children being a bit scared and children being disturbed by something a huge difference yeah we definitely wouldn't be reassuring it if we thought children were going to be disturbed but yeah we we definitely think it's on the right side of sort of giving giving a bit of a scare and i've obviously been collecting lots of reader reviews um you know loads there's so much stuff about this book all over the internet you know but pretty much the whole book is available in some format People have shared so many pictures of it. I've reviewed it so many times. There are so many sort of comments about it. But um, through the various, um, you know, tweets and the petition and Amazon reviews and stuff, we've got this huge bank of 
um, reviews from people. One of my favourites is somebody that describes this book as blood-curdling, pillow-grabbing, sleep-depriving, imagination-firing wonderfulness, <laughs> which I think like, sums it up. Yeah, you can't go you know, wrong with that, can you? It's scary, but it's amazing and brilliant and wonderful and, and, and makes you want to explore and find out things and be creative. And, and yeah, I think the, the fact that this, there is this sort of whole generation of people, particularly people that have gone into the creative industries, you know, it's like you were saying, Reese Shearsmith loved Dee Osborne books, you know, Jokes and Tricks and World of the Unknown. That, that leads down this path of, you know, League of Gentlemen inside number nine. It's the, 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 um, it's quite clear to see the influences, I think, for a lot of these people. Yeah. Yes, it really is, isn't it? Um, we ought to wrap this up, I guess, because we're about an hour in and I feel that we could talk for a lot longer, actually, about this. But um, <laughs> but just, just before we do finish, I just want to give you both the chance to talk, if you want to do so, um, about um, live um events uh anna first um do you see this book going on tour for example um yeah i really like to see this book going on tour um we're i, I don't know if it'll happen partly because um this is not my main job talking about this this book although it's, it's it's taking up a lot of my time in a very sort of pleasurable way um we didn't think we had an author attached also obviously until we were fairly recently in touch with christopher maynard um it seems like he's quite keen um to do stuff so we'll see how much stuff we can talk him into doing um there's definitely a huge demand for it uh we've already been talking to lots of people about various events various formats um yeah, uh, possibly an event at a haunted house. Um, I've spoken to someone this week about a haunted uh, National Trust property with a spooky woodland. Um, we're talking about independent bookshop events across the country, possibly working with the Booksellers Association. Um, so there's lots of stuff going on. We're hoping that we might have a few screenings of Borley Rectory here or there. Um, and also we're very keen to get... Um, get some use out of the Ouija board that Ashley's dad made for Reese. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that will be a controversial event, believe me. Uh, <laughs> Ashley, um, i just give you an opportunity to talk about uh, your forthcoming live event too. Mm, yeah. Um, well, apart from the fact that the, uh, the Borley Retri film is now available to pre-order from Nucleus Films, um, on Blu-ray, they're coming Absolutely. out on October the f October fourteenth. That's released, and that has this wonderful Osborne featurette on there, um, which is kind of one of my pride and joys on the disc. Actually, I was I can't believe that you know I spoke to Nucleus saying we should do this, and we've somehow managed to get it done. You know, huge thanks to Anna on that. Um, we've also because of a, a lifelong obsession with Dartmoor ghost stories and Dartmoor myths, and and always because of this this sense that. Devon was never, because it was outside London almost, and it, it was never really given this opportunity to shine as a destination for this supernatural, even though it has Dartmoor and Hound of the Baskervilles and, you know, Jamaica Inn and Lorna Doon, all these things. Uh, in At the Exit of Phoenix between November the 8th and November the 10th, um, we are going to host a gothic horror weekend where things like Baldy Retchie will be showing, and we've got a lot of different experts on folklore 
and Gothic horror and the heritage of horror, um, all tied into the Southwest as much as possible. And we've got a lot of very, very special guests coming down for that, which we will be announcing over the, the coming weeks. And the inevitable screening of Bawley Rectory again, because we don't have to pay for the rights for it. Absolutely, and the, inevit- <laughs> and the inevitable talk from me because I live down the road. Yes. Well, yeah, plus you're very knowledgeable on uh, like demon hounds and things, which is uh, the, the crux of the festival. So, yeah, I'm really excited about that because I really want to um, shine a light on the southwest and its um, its heritage of horror. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's going to I think that's going to be a great event. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, right. Finally, and most importantly, let's make sure that people know where to go to find out all the things they need to find out. I will link to all of these places from the Folklore Podcast website to take people to where they need to go. Anna, where would you like people to go to find out more about this book and to pre-order it? Well, it is available to pre-order from Amazon, Book Depository, uh, all good online retailers. And it will be available probably from about mid-September in all good bookshops offline as well. And if people want to find out more about you and what you do, where would you suggest they go for that? Um, I would suggest going to usborn.com and having a look around our three and a half thousand children's books. Excellent. Thank you. Ashley, uh, where would you like people to go to find out more about Borley Rectory and to pre-order the Blu-ray? Yeah, um, it can be pre-ordered via Amazon. Um, It can also be ordered directly from NucleusFilms.com. And I believe that if you pre-order it from them, you get a a limited signed postcard. Um, And in terms of the Helltour Film Festival, there is a Facebook Uh, page but there will also be a website appearing soon excellent links to all of those will be on the guests page on the folklore podcast website so that you can click through to where you need to go anna ashley thank you both so much for taking the time to talk this evening thank you pleasure thank you very much my thanks to anna and to ashley for joining me for this interview Please visit the guests page of the Folklore Podcast website to find not only the headshots and biographies of my guests, but also links to the pre-orders of both the Usborne Ghosts book and Ashley's Borley Rectory Blu-ray. On the next episode of the Folklore Podcast, I'll be discussing Russian folklore and children's literature with another Usborne author, Sophie Anderson, whose debut novel, The House with Chicken Legs, was a massive success and shortlisted for the 2019 Carnegie Prize, amongst many others, and whose new book, The Girl Who Speaks Bear, looks set to be just as popular. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, 
for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.